Thank you very much, Keith. Um, when you mentioned the 39 years, I was hoping everyone would go, no, surely not. <laughs> That's not possible. We met at kindergarten. <laughs> um, and, I, and I was going to suggest that I, I could, you know, have some all sorts of interesting tales to tell about Keith from his past. But then I was worried that um, he might do the same to me. So <laughs> I do, though, actually, I want to say something slight. I know it's great to tease. And um, I want to say something slight, slightly more serious, which is that I can still remember really clearly going to Keith Niney's house. You had a, little, a round table at the far end of your living room. And we used to have meals together there before um, studying the Bible together. I think you probably introduced me to Chili Con Carne. I don't know. It might have been. <laughs> I also remember, down on the right here on the floor, your very large collection of records. I don't know if you've still got those. Actually, real records, LPs, you put a needle on. If you have got them, they're probably worth quite a bit, I think. Um, it's fantastic to be welcomed here. Thank you very much for your hospitality. I say that in advance. Uh, I am an Anglican. But I'm quite pleased to know it's not just in Anglican seats that people fill up from the back. So, although you could do with a few pews, I think, just to, you know, Steve's told me that there's going to be a percentage of you that your seats are so comfy, you will fall asleep in the sermon, but I shouldn't take that personally, because that, that happens every week. But just, well, he said it happens when he preaches. So, hey, you know, I also have to say, I'm really impressed that you've got not one, but two clocks on the wall at the back. So I, I will be paying attention uh, to, you didn't realize that, did you? I know. You, the moment you stand here, you can see it. But uh, because I know among, amongst friends, I, I guess probably Sanjay was going to be leading the sung worship. So uh, 10 days ago, I tried to start emulating him. And he was kind enough to say that I've got quite good coverage considering, considering I'm an Anglican. Now, the book of Revelation. Who here likes Marmite? Okay, who hates Marmite? Great. The book of Revelation, I think, is the Marmite of the New Testament. When I go and speak to groups about this book, I usually find that I, I say something like, what's your previous experience of being? How do you feel about this book? And usually about 80, 85% say, it's terrifying, it's full of images, I don't understand, it's confusing. And then a little group at the back say, actually, it's the most, my favorite book of the Bible. They usually sit together in a kind of like a, a little weirdos group. But that's great because I, I can go and join them afterwards. I know I'm amongst weird friends. And when, when God called me to do a PhD, which God does, God called you to a PhD as well. He said, that's okay. My, my concern was to say, how can I, what I study, help and serve the church to read the scriptures? Because reading and understanding the scriptures has got to be the lifeblood of who we are. God has spoken. He's spoken in his son Jesus. And he's spoken in the scriptures which testify to his great acts of salvation. And in particular in Jesus. So we need to be rooted in the scriptures. And by his spirit, God continues to speak today through words, through signs, and through the reading and the study and the preaching of the scriptures. So I said, what can I do? I know I will take the toughest book of the Bible, and if I can say anything useful about that and how we read it, then maybe that'll help us read other stuff too. More fool me. 
that I did. And I found it's... Actually, I did first came across uh, the book of Revelation when I was uh, a teenager. You may have had a, a similar experience. Actually, I was a bit of a mixed-up kid. I was brought up a Roman Catholic. I came to faith in uh, Christchurch, an Anglican church. So Keith's really an Anglican too, you know. And... Uh, I also went to a Baptist church Bible study group. When we opened the book of Revelation, we felt this is what we ought to read. And we thought, what, how, how are we going to make sense of this? And fortunately, the, the person leading the group said, ah, it's okay. I've read a book which tells us how to make sense of it. Aha. Uh-huh. We weren't Roman Catholics, you see, so we didn't believe in priests mediating the truth. We just believed in priestly books. Good. <laughs> Tell us what we needed to know about the Bible. And uh, so we read chapter 1. We thought, ah, okay, yeah, fine. We read chapters 2 and 3. Those churches, yeah, a bit dodgy, mm, yeah, a bit of a mixed bunch. We got to chapter 4 and 5. We thought, oh, worship, yeah, ooh, mm, ah, yes, sort of. We got to chapter 6, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and we thought, God's probably telling us to read something else now, so... (laughs) And that's what my experience is. You go to a Christian bookshop, you find lots of books about the first four, three, four, five chapters. Not much about the rest of it. So I know that some of you will have really spent time in this and that you'll have your own views. And I'll tell you right now, not just because I'm an Anglican, I am going to upset some of you, okay? Because I'm, I'm just going to say some stuff. Because, because I can't say anything about Revelation without upsetting some, upsetting some of you. Because you'll have different views on the book. And the first thing I'm going to say, which is not only going to upset you, it's probably going to upset Steve, and uh, it's going to probably throw your sermon series into chaos, which is that I want to say this. Revelation, the book of Revelation, is not about the future. Oh, I've got some agreement there. Okay. I'll wait for people to walk out. Okay. Now, I just, I just want to explain what I mean by that. Because, you see, a lot of people who've read the book of Revelation, if you've got a Bible open, uh, it might be, you might want to have it open, the book of Revelation, um, if you have such a thing as a printed Bible. Those of you with smartphones and Bibles on them, this is what we old people use. They're called books, okay? You know about the story of the student who went to a university and he was, he was showing around the library. And uh, he came to one part of it, and there were all these volumes that looked exactly the same. And he said... To the person doing the tour, what are those? And the person doing the tour said, oh, those are the encyclopedias. And the candidate said, what, you mean someone bothered to print them out? (laughs) Revelation's really easy to find. It's at the back. So, uh, but a lot of people have said it's about the future. And the reason they've said that is they've looked at this verse Uh, Revelation 119, where the risen Jesus says to John, write what you have seen, what is and what will be. And particularly a chap called George Eldon Ladd, some of you may have heard of, he argued this shows the, 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 the interpretive key to Revelation, how we make sense of it. So there's stuff about what he has seen, the past, Stuff about what is the present and stuff that will come the future. And so Ladd and people who follow him use that as a pattern for making sense of this book. I think that's a mistake. The reason that's a mistake, if you look carefully at what Jesus says, he says, write what you have seen, as if the visions have already happened or they've been happening over a period of time. And the content of what he has seen is... What is and what will be? Do you see? So it's not actually as simple as this threefold structure. 
And I think people have really gone wrong and made a mistake when they treated this book of Revelation as a kind of end times map and schedule, as if you can map the future events of the world onto this book. And the main reason that that's a mistake is because John didn't write to us. He might have written for us, in the sense that this is now part of the scriptures for us, but he was writing to people he knew. They did not live in the 21st century. They lived in the 1st century. They did not live in England, in Britain, in Europe. They lived in the west end of Turkey, the Roman province of Asia. And he, John, is a pastor, and he knew his people. He knew the challenges they were going to face. By God's Spirit, he maybe knew the challenges they were going to face in the next 200 years. The period of most intense persecution the church has ever known from the time end of the first century until the beginning of the fourth and the time when the church has grown faster than any other time in history and any other place in the world how about that and if you open the book of revelation and you think this stuff is really weird you're right it is it is really weird it's really weird it's it's at a distance from us but just have a think. Suppose you were writing something prophetic and God had told you that, that his people were going to suffer intense persecution for 200 years. What would you write? What would you write? You'd have to find some extraordinary words, and John does so. But I think a much better way to understand the key to this book is, a, is 10 verses earlier where he says this. He's writing. Actually, the whole of book Revelation is, is structured as a letter. Do you know in verse, at uh, the beginning, he says, I, John, uh, to the Christians who live in the, these seven cities, gives them a greeting. That's just a standard letter opening. That's, dear Christians, love from John. This whole thing. It's lots of other things too. It's, it's prophecy, it's a revelation, but it's also written in the form of a letter. And here, he says in verse 9, I, John, am your brother in kingdom, in Suffering, probably your version says, the authorized version says, tribulation and patient endurance. Notice he is already experiencing tribulation or suffering. I'm your brother and these are the things we share. And what he's saying there is this. You and I have experienced the wonders of the kingdom of God which has come to us through Jesus, through his life and ministry, through his death and resurrection. We know the future. We've seen the future. It's the kingdom of God. On the one hand. On the other hand, we know that that kingdom is not yet fully manifest in this world. And because we're out of step with the world, then we have suffering. What did Jesus say to his disciples at the end of John's gospel? He says, he says, you will have trouble in this world. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And that's John's experience here as well. Whether or not he was the same as the author of the gospels. His arguments both ways. So on the one hand, we experience kingdom. And on the other hand, we experience suffering because this age has not yet passed away. What do you need in your life to hold together those two realities? patient endurance we've tasted the future we know the world that is to come but we also still as paul puts it in romans 8 he says we we groan this world groans with pangs longing to see the glory of the children of god that we've started to taste together here as we have encountered god in worship kingdom 
patient, uh, suffering and patient endurance. And I think this is a much more helpful key to understanding what Revelation is doing, how it's describing its world. John is looking through binoculars. He's got binocular vision. You, we, we as humans have binocular vision. We've got two eyes. And you've got to have binocular vision to tell the difference between what's right in front of you and what's in the distant future. Yeah? That's how you have depth perception. And that's the kind of thing John has. He has binocular vision because his whole book is moving between vision of the kingdom and vision of the world we're in. Vision of the heaven reality and vision of the often gruesome earthly reality. Now, those of you who actually got printed Bibles will find this easier. Have you noticed I've got a thing about printed Bibles? Yay! Whoa, 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 excellent. Because you see, if you, if you just look through, if, you've got, if you're on a digital, you have to, you're going to have to scroll pretty quickly. Incidentally, that's why we've got this format of book. Do you know that in the ancient world, everyone used scrolls, like, like you're scrolling through your text? And, and, and do, you know, do you know who invented this format? They decided to cut the scroll up into sheets, stick them together, glue at the end, put a cover on. Who did that? The Christians. Why? Because they were so interested in reading this book. Faith changes the world. Every time you pick up a book, if you ever do, remember, it's the gospel that's created it. Because it's the first time that literature became popular amongst people. So if you look, what do we have here? Revelation chapter 1, in the first part of the chapter... John is clearly focused on the earthly reality. He's greeting these people he knows. Then he has a vision of Jesus, the heavenly reality. Chapter 2, where do we go? Back down to the earthly reality. These mixed people in the congregations in those seven cities. So uh, back to earth again. What happens in Revelation 4 and 5? His vision is lifted to the heavenly realities of worship of all creation around the throne of God. What then happens in chapter 6? Well, you can guess. You know what's coming next? The other bit of binocular. He's looking back down to earthly reality. He sees these four horsemen galloping far and wide. What happens in chapter 7? Are you getting the idea here? He's looking back up to the heavenly reality of what the people of God really look like from God's perspective. Chapter 8, back down to the earth reality and chapter 9. Chapter 10, a vision of the prophetic task, heavenly reality. Back down, chapter 11, a, uh, the, 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 the actual reality of what it means to testify to Jesus. Chapter 12, The centerpiece of this book, and we're going to come back to it in a minute and look at it in more detail. The centerpiece, this cosmic conflict in the heavenly places where the destiny of the cosmos is decided. Chapter 13, what it then means for the saints to be trampled by the beast. And so on and so on. Do you see what's happening? He's constantly moving from earthly reality to heavenly reality. And he's saying, he's saying to us, he's saying to his first readers, what does it mean, what does it mean to live in earthly reality in the light of the heavenly reality? Now there is a a time dimension to this, and that's because of what we've just sung. What have we just sung about? We've sung our praises to the God who was and who is and who is to come. That's what he starts with, that's his opening greeting, that's where his blessing comes from. Why is that significant? I don't know if you recognize that phrase from earlier in the scriptures. You know, when Moses encounters God in the burning bush, and, and God commissions him, and Moses says, who shall I say sent me? And God, as helpful as ever, doesn't actually tell him. He says, say I am who I am. Sent me. Well, that's, that's really going to help Moses. Thanks, God. That's really getting out of a fix, isn't it? 
That really explains everything, doesn't it? Give me a riddle. Why not? But what God says is, I am who I am, or I, I was who I was, and I will be who I will be. You see, the God of the Scriptures is the God who was, who is, and who will be. And John takes that characteristically. One of the reasons we find Revelation so strange is because he's constantly using Old Testament imagery. Now, unless we know our Old Testaments by heart, we're going to struggle with this book. But he takes it and he adapts it. And instead of being the God who was, who is, and who will be, he's the God who was and who is and who is to come. And who is to come? Jesus. Revelation tells us the future of God is the coming of Jesus. As the angel said to the disciples, they looked at the soles of Jesus' feet on the ascension and said, this Jesus will return just as you've seen him go. Isn't that amazing? That the future of God is the coming of Jesus. And in fact, as we look through that all saying, heaven, the earth, heaven, earth, heaven, earth, heaven, all the earth, what we see is the convergence Heaven coming down to earth, heaven touching earth, heaven being present through God's people, heaven being present through Jesus' offering of himself, that's chapter 12, heaven being present as, as God's judgment unfolds on the earth, particularly chapter 17, and actually God's judgment, Paul tells us, is actually simply allowing people to go off and to choose their own destiny. And ultimately, heaven coming to earth In Jesus coming as the judge, the rider on the white horse, and then chapter 21, the heavenly Jerusalem coming down to earth. The destiny of the cosmos, our destiny, is not to leave this earth to be with God in heaven, but it's heaven come down to earth. And that's why God's presence amongst us here is an anticipation of the future. When you gather here this morning, you're tasting the future. God come down to earth. The one who is, who was, and who is to come. And as we look through Revelation, I think we see three things put really clearly. Number one, the world is a mess. Does anybody want to disagree with me on that? (laughs) If you, well, if you disagree with me, just read chapter 6. These four horsemen galloping far and wide. Again, an idea John's borrowed from the Old Testament. It gives them particular meaning. The different colors of the horses signifying different things. So the first horse come, comes, and it's actually, it's false religion. It's a bow, a rider on a white horse with a bow. That's the god Apollo. A bow and arrow was Apollo's uh, signature. So religion which deceives people. That's the first thing that's gone wrong. What's the second thing that's gone wrong? Another bright red horse taking peace from the earth. Warfare, people slaughtering one another. The third seal, the third horse comes out, a black horse. He has scales in his hands, famine and shortage. And then the fourth seal, the fourth horse, a pale green rider, a sickly green, the color of chlorine. Choke, choke your throat, death. These aren't, this isn't the future. This is the present. This is history. If you don't believe me, turn on your TV, read your newspaper, study history. You know the Black Death, which demolished a third of the population of Europe. The, the, the Thirty Years' War in Germany, 70% of the population died. This isn't some end times vindictive thing God's going to unleash on the world. This is the way the world is. And John's readers knew it. They knew that under the Roman Empire that the soldiers would come and they'd slaughter people indiscriminately. That, that, do you know that in, in, in Europe, 
we used to have bears and lions and stuff, and, and they disappeared. Why? Because so many were slaughtered in the circuses to entertain people. Environmental catastrophe and damage. It's been happening for thousands of years. This is the way the world is when we turn from the living God. So John is just describing how the world is. The world is a mess. Secondly, God's people are a muddle. That's not a comment on what I see sitting before me. That's just an observation. If you just go and have a read through Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the messages, they're not letters, they're messages. The whole Revelation is a letter. The royal proclamations of the risen Jesus to his people announcing he sees what they're like. What are they like? They're a mixed bunch. Their love's gone cold. They've compromised. They've followed false teachers. Some of them are sticking with it. That's great. They're doing well. Jesus encourages them. But they need to get their act together. They need to get their act together. That's why I'm not clear that yet Revelation is written to people under pressure as consolation. Some people say it's a book for the persecuted to encourage them. It's not very encouraging to go up to people and say, you're useless, you've lost your first love. If you don't get your act together, I'm going to take you out of the plunder and remove your lampstand. That's not what you say to people under pressure, is it? It's a challenge to the comfortable as much as it's a comfort to the challenged. I can't help feeling that the church in the West needs to hear that challenge. So, the world's a mess. God's people are in a muddle. And, so here I am going to time with you. I'll get your preaching series at last. You'll be pleased to know. The kingdom is contested. And that's the cause of the mess. That's the cause of the muddle. That's why it's so important that we as the people of God get our act together. This kingdom is contested. I'll just give you a couple of examples of that. Turn to Revelation chapter 4. Isn't that, I, I, what a fantastic song that was. Did you notice that? Was it the last song? It's actually just a words from Revelation chapter 4. Okay? But it was only half the words from Revelation chapter 4. Because if you look through Revelation chapter 4, you find all sorts of imagery from the Old Testament. You find a throne. God's on a throne. Yeah, we know that from Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel. You find a rainbow, a rainbow of promise from Noah, although this rainbow is all green. How do you have a multicolored rainbow that's green? I don't know. It's weird, isn't it? It's a weird book. Okay? So uh, you have four living creatures around the throne. That's from Ezekiel's vision. You have jewels from the book of Genesis. You have lightning and thunder. We had that in the song. What does that signify? God's presence on Mount Sinai, revealing his word and, and, and meeting with his people. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So you have that part of the vision of worship. But then you have this whole load of other stuff. You, you're the thrones in a room. That's not in the Bible. You have 24 elders. They're not the people of worship in the Old Testament. It's priests who worship in the Old Testament. Who are they? They're dressed in white. What's that about? They have golden crowns that they're casting down. And they sing these terribly boring, charismatic, repetitive choruses. <laughs> Oh, sorry. <laughs> A bit of Anglican sneaking out there. <laughs> These images are all from where? The worship of the emperor. The worship of the emperor. This is how people, when the emperor traveled around the empire and he visited cities, the elders of the cities come out and they cast their crowns before the emperor to say, we've been ruling using your power, O emperor, the source of salvation, that's the language they use, the bringer of life and peace. Without you, they would say, we are lost. And then a chap with a stick would say, sing it 27 more times. He really did. We've got the, we've got the, we've got the script. We've got the, the, the song sheets. I can imagine 
on the 26th time saying, once more, with feeling. <laughs> By the way, I have the emperor's sword here. That would encourage you, wouldn't it, to worship? Do you see what Revelation is doing? It's, it's, it's the, the, the power, the, the kingdom is contested. In the New Testament, the language of empire and the language of kingdom is the same language. There's only one word, if you're a Greek scholar, it's basileia. One word. And the question is, who is king? Who is the source of salvation? Is it the emperor? Is it armies? Is it an economic system of free trade? Is that where our salvation lies? Is it in a political system? Or is it in the creator God who was and is and who is to come? That's the contest. And that contest reaches its climax in chapter 12, which is the central chapter of the book. Now, if you've ever read Revelation chapter 12, cast your eye over it now. There's a woman clothed with the sun, 12 stars under her feet. She's in the pains of childbirth. She, and a dragon, python dragon, sits in front of her, ready to consume the child. She gives birth, but the child is snatched away and, in fact, goes away and ultimately defeats the dragon. And you read that and you think, John... Please put away the magic mushrooms. <laughs> what on earth is that about? But interestingly, John's first readers would have said, yes, of course, we understand. You see, what John was doing was telling it in a way they understood. That is a story about, again, here he is again, Apollo. Because the story went around, the god Apollo... His mother uh, was uh, wife to, married to Zeus, and then he went off and had an affair with somebody else. And then uh, she was pregnant with Apollo and with Artemis, Apollo's sister, and gave birth to them. The dragon, Python, knew that Apollo was going to slay him, but Apollo grew up fast. He's only four days old in this picture. I was going to say he looks a bit camp, doesn't he? Like this. But, you know, for four days old, he's doing, not doing badly. And he slays the dragon. And the key thing was the Roman emperors took that story and said, that's us. We're your Apollo. We're the ones who will slay the chaos monster. Come within the emperor. Worship me and I will make you safe and secure. Let me station my legions in your countries and I will protect you. And you see what John's doing? He's saying, no, it's not, it's not about Artemis and Apollo. It's a real story. Ephesus was the center of worship in the empire for Artemis, Apollo's sister. It was a real issue for them. It was a live question. Where does your security and salvation lie? Who is the king of the eternal kingdom where you're going to find your security? And John says, it's not Apollo, it's Jesus. It's not the empire, that political system. In fact, that empire is the chaos monster. That empire is the one that's unleashing these beasts who are trampling the people. And John says, it's not him. It's Jesus who, who you'll find your salvation. But what's really interesting is it's not just Jesus. It's not just Jesus. Look closely at Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. We've got the story, the first few verses in the story using this Apollo myth, so we might find that baffling. Then from verse 7, it's actually drawing on Jewish uh, angelology stories. Then in verse 10, if we haven't understood it, now he makes it clear in a hymn. Now have come the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his anointed one, his Messiah. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night. 
How has the victory over Satan been won? What would be your first answer? Jesus. Isn't it? I feel, I feel like the Sunday school teacher who uh, said, to, said to the group, what's grey has a bushy tail and buries nuts for the winter? The little boy at the back says, I know the answer's always Jesus, but it certainly sounds like a squirrel to me. But look, it's not just Jesus. Look, look. They have conquered him, yes, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Isn't that fascinating? Right? So, the cosmic achievement of Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection, that's the thing we look to. And yet, the victory is only really won when that becomes real in our lives. When that testimony, we can testify to the power of God and to salvation that comes through Jesus. It's Jesus and his brothers and sisters who are sitting here before me. Do you know, Bill Hybel says that the local church is the answer for the world. The local church. And John says the same. He, he, he got that 2,000 years ahead. You see, what's happening as he looks at earthly reality, heavenly reality, earthly reality, heavenly reality, and on the earth the saints cry out, how long, O Lord, what are you going to do about it? What is the answer to the problems of the world? And yes, John says, it's Jesus. But he also says, it's God's people. Isn't that extraordinary? Even though we're a muddle and a mess, God looks at us and he says, I've got a task for you, which is to share with me in my, my mission of transforming the world. You see, when we see war and disaster, what's the answer to it? I think part of the answer a year ago is 20 Coptic Christians who refused to love their lives more than death. And it's incredibly moving. I don't know if you saw the videos of the families of those people executed by so-called uh, Islamic State on the beach in Egypt. And they said, we're so grateful because as we watched the video, we heard our sons, our brothers call out before they were killed, Jesus is Lord. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that amazing answer to the violence of this world? What is the answer to increasing inequality in our country and food poverty? It's mostly Christians setting up food banks. What is the answer to the environmental catastrophes that our world faces? It's, it's the people of God saying, we're not going to bow to the altar of economic growth if that's going to cost the world. One of the things that Revelation says at the end is God destroys the destroyers of the world. The rainbow around his throne says he's committed to his earth, the created world that he made. I don't know whether you believe in God, but you need to know God believes in you. He believes in you, and he believes in you. Yes, wasn't that lovely about speed and velocity? Hey, physics can teach us theology. That's great, because my first degree is in maths. And I met Mike. I don't know where Mike is, but Mike does operational research. And I said, I've got a degree in operational research. He went, yay, there's two of us. (laughs) But you know, God's kindness towards us is not just kindness towards us. It's actually trusting us, trusting us with what he wants to do in the world. Do you remember when Jesus sent out the 72? He sent them out to all the places he wanted to go. 
Revelation says that's what he does. When he wants the world to be healed, to be transformed, to know about him, he sends us. We're the answer. It's dangerous to say, we're God's gift (laughs) to the world. Now, that phrase is usually taken in the wrong way, but isn't that amazing? Isn't that humbling that he wants to use us in partnership to do his work of bringing his kingdom, to making that kingdom realized and transforming the world? So, what's he going to do with us? I better finish. How are we doing? I'm looking at the clock. Okay, keep going. All right, so, okay, another two hours? No, somebody's got lunch to go to. Well, just from, let's turn back to chapter 7. I know we're jumping around a little bit, but then John jumps around, so that's okay. Chapter 7 is is remarkable. It's a remarkable text because, I won't come to that yet. In chapter 7, he has a, oh, sorry, I do want to come to that. Beg your pardon. So I just want to say something else about his victory. In case you're in any doubt, um, this is a picture somebody did of, um, of that scene in the middle of chapter 12 where Michael and his angels expel Satan. Do you notice anything about that picture? Can you see it? How tall is Michael? How big is the dragon? You see? It's not even a contest. This is the power of God he wants to release for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. I just think that's fantastic. Do you know, even more than that, Jesus didn't even bother doing it himself. He said, I've done what's needed to do. He's like one of these business executives who goes into a meeting, negotiates the deal, that's done, and then he says to his underlings, fine, you tidy up the details. I've got other stuff to do, you see? Jesus died, death and resurrection. Is utterly defeats the power of Satan. And he just says, right, okay, there you go. I've done it for you. Get on with it. There's the power. If you worry that Satan is shaping your world, just remember that picture. So, let's go to Revelation chapter 7. Here's a picture, I think a threefold picture, of who we are as the people of God. And I found this really challenging because it says to me, this is what God wants to do with me. If we're going to be ready for this task, if we're going to be proclaimers of the kingdom, if we're going to be the bringers of that kingdom completed into the present from the future, what does God need to do with us? Well, just very quickly, a brief tour of what's going on in chapter 7. First of all, we see the context of judgment. After this, says John, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on earth or sea or against any other tree. I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun in the east, having the seal of the living God. And he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to damage the earth and sea, saying, do not damage the earth or seal the trees until we've marked the servants of our God with a seal on their foreheads. Now again, if you know your Old Testament, you recognize those verses. You'll have heard that story before. I don't know whether I dare test anybody. <laughs> it's Ezekiel chapter 9. And it's a, it's, a, it's a story of the judgment actually on God's people in Jerusalem. And the angel goes through the city finding any who are actually going to be faithful to God and they're sealed on their foreheads in order to preserve them from the judgment that is to come. We live in a world that's experiencing judgment. All around, we see. But God wants to preserve his people. And then he goes in chapter from, from verse 4. I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. And John again is doing theology through maths. Because 144,000, as you'll know from your school day maths, is a square times a cube. Yeah? 
And for John, that means the place of the holiness of God. Because if you go back into the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies, do you know what shape the Holy of Holies was? It's a cube. Yeah. Signifying God's perfect presence. When the New Jerusalem comes down, what shape is it? It's a cube. Because it's the Holy of Holies. That's why the New Jerusalem does not need a temple. Because it's full of the presence of God. And here it's the people of God who are the temple of God. Oh, Paul talked about that, didn't he? Jesus talked about that. I am the temple. And because we're part of who Jesus is, we are now his temple, his dwelling place, the place of his holiness. But he counts them out. And um, when I read this as a teenager, it was quite amusing. I had the Got No Brains. I mean, the Good News Bible. Sorry. I now read the the RSV, the really sound version. And it got fed up with this, you see, because it was too complicated to count out all the tribes. It just said, oh, 12,000 from each tribe, you know, get on with it. But actually, the list is important. Counting out 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. What's going on? The angel is counting these people out. Why do you count out people? What do we call that when you count up how many people there are? We call it a census. Why do you take a census? In our world, because of tax. In the ancient world, you count up people because you need to know the strength of your fighting force. This is a picture of an army on the march. But it's an army who are organized in serried ranks. They're a disciplined army. Why do soldiers do all this button polishing, boot polishing, belt widening and stuff on the parade ground? Why do they do it? It's preparation for battle. The disciplines they learn in the safe place equips them for the warfare in the place of danger. And John's concern is that we are the disciplined people of God, ready, prepared for spiritual conflict. And a key part of that discipline is our worship. And we know that because there's one tribe missing from this list, which I'm sure you'd have spotted, because I'm sure you know. Well, yeah, Levi, because um, Levi was, uh, didn't have a share of the land. Oh, no, there is true Levi there, actually. Verse 7. Ha-ha. It's the tribe of Dan. Why is Dan missing? Because Dan was the one who set up their own holy place in the north. It's too far to go to Jerusalem. They didn't accept the disciplines of worship. We're an army marching, and for that we need to be disciplined. And the heart of that discipline is when we gather together, when we encounter the living God, when we confess our sins to him. We, we do that in Anglican churches all the time, you know. We're very disciplined. <laughs> we confess our sins. We hear God's word. We come to a place where he straightens us out, and he sorts us out, and he equips us. We're, we may feel as though we're just polishing belts and buttons, but the meeting place is the training place. For the marketplace. The safe place is the place of discipline, of forming our lives so we'll be ready for the spiritual battle that's out there. Now, I think discipline has got a really negative sense in our culture. It sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? It's actually related to the word disciple. I think our culture is longing actually to see people who live lives of discipline, who aren't just blown around by the wind or by peer pressure or by the latest advert or whatever. People long to find life-giving patterns of living. And that's what we can offer them. So that's the first part of this picture. The second part of this picture is equally cheerful. John sees. You see, he's heard... 
the number being counted and he turns to look and he always does that he hears the voice in chapter one and he turns to see the voice what he sees and what he hears interprets each other there was this numbered people 144,000 in fact or an unnumbered great multitude that no one can count from every tribe nation people and language standing before the throne of the lamb robed in white and they're praising God and then verse 13 one of the elders addressed me saying who are these robed in white and where have they come from I said sir you're the one that knows they've come out of the great tribulation I don't think John here is talking about some intense end time suffering I think he's talking about that tribulation it's exactly the same word John used at the beginning it's the tribulation that you will experience if you've known the kingdom but you're still living in this world and if you don't believe me, look at Paul's evangelistic strategy. What does he say when he goes around Lister and Durban, his first missionary trip? He says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. That's a good evangelistic strategy. Have you tried that here in Oxford and Whitney and whatever you are? Come, suffer with us. Or maybe come and hear our guest speaker, and then you'll know what suffering is. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. But this is our lot. Jesus was hungry and thirsty. He had only one garment. He had nowhere to lay his head. And he said, if anybody wants to follow me, they must come after me. If you want to be like me, you must walk the path that I walked. And it is a path of hardship and suffering. He says that to the disciples in Mark 10. That's what Paul's longing in Philippians 3 is. Oh, that I might be like him in his sufferings and somehow attain the resurrection of the dead. And you may say, wow, that's, that's not very encouraging, is it? And yet, and yet, we live in a world that suffers. How do we relate to that? Can we really detach ourselves and say, you poor miserable people suffering, we're fine, thank you very much. Actually, that's not going to draw many people. And folks, I don't know you personally, but I'd wager there are people here who are suffering. You're suffering through ill health. You're suffering because of disappointment. You're suffering because someone in your family is ill or is, hasn't, one of your children hasn't gone the way that you wanted them to. You long for them. And we need to make space for suffering in our midst. God doesn't want to snuff out a smoldering wick. But he wants to restore. So, an army marching... A people suffering, but lastly, the saints praising. He looks at this crowd and they say, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Blessing and honor and thanksgiving and power and might be to our God forever and ever. And here's the thing. What do we praise God for? Well, we can look back. We praise him for what he has done in Jesus. But we can't just look back because that ends up becoming nostalgia. If you don't believe me, come and visit an Anglican church. We love the past. <laughs> God's done great things in the past. And we're determined to stick with it. Do you know a new vicar came to a church and a church warden had been there. Do you don't have church wardens here, do you? I don't know, an elder or whatever, whatever you have. And, and, and the new minister came, the vicar said, and he said, how long have we been church warden? And the church warden said, oh, 35 years. Yeah, almost as long as we've known each other. And... Uh, and the vicar said, you must have seen lots of change in that time. And the church warden said, yes, I have, and I've opposed every single one of them. <laughs> if we're just looking to what God has done in the past, even in Jesus, that's nostalgia. If we praise, we praise God for what he's doing in the present, of course we do. 
But we can't just praise God for the present. That ends up just being triumphalism. And that isn't true to this combination of kingdom and suffering and patient endurance. If you're going to be patient and endure, that's because what you long for has not happened yet. Not all our prayers have been answered. Not everyone has been healed. Praise the Lord, many have. But I, actually not long after we knew each other, I dated a very nice girl uh, for a while. Um, it didn't last. She married another, somebody else. They had a great marriage, a couple of kids. Tragically, she died of cancer of the esophagus, age 40. Leaving a husband and two children, aged one and three. And you can't simply praise God in the present for that. What you can do is you praise God, not just for what he's done, not just for what he might do in the present, for what he will do in the future. They praise, it says, the reason they are before the throne of God, worship him day and night within his temple because future tense, they will hunger no more. Future tense, they will thirst no more. Future tense, the sun will not strike them nor will any scorching heat. Paul says, we endure suffering, Romans 5, because that produces hope. And that hope will not disappoint us because God has poured his his love into our heart by his spirit. And we will see the kingdom come in all its fullness. Heavenly reality, earthly reality. Heaven coming down to earth. What was the prayer Jesus taught us? May your name be honored. May your kingdom come. And may your will be done as it is now in heaven. So it will be increasingly and one day absolutely on earth. That's the prayer Jesus taught us. That's the story that John is telling of heaven come down to earth. You see, this story is our story. That's why Revelation is not just about the future. It is about the future, but it's about your life and my life and how we live in present reality in the light of heavenly reality and in the light of the fact that that's going to become our reality. We are brothers with John in kingdom suffering and patient endurance. We are, I visited here the Oxford lampstand, amongst which Jesus walks. I know that You are just as we are in Nottingham, a motley crew. And yet we are like those elders. We are those elders who are casting our crowns before God in the heavenly realms. We see the four horsemen riding in our world far and wide. And yet we are this gathered army, the suffering people who yet praise God in their discipline for what he will do. We know what the beast does. Wherever the beast is at work in our world, trampling God's people underfoot. Yet we know, like that woman taken to the desert in chapter 12, we know the nurturing and protection and saving power of God while we wait for his kingdom to come in all its glory. But the great thing about this story is we know how it ends. We know that death itself will be defeated and thrown into the lake of fire. We know that heaven will come down to earth. We know that God will be with his people. And he will be so close that we'll feel him reach out and touch us with his finger and wipe every tear from our eye. That is how the story ends. It ends with a city paved with gold, with the water of life for anyone to drink and the leaves of the tree on either side for the healing of the nations. That's the vision we have. That's the, that's the destiny. That God is calling us to. 
a businessman died. And uh, he went up to the pearly gates. I know people think pearly gates is a funny story. It actually comes from Revelation 21. It's the gates made of pearl. He goes up to the pearly gates, and there is St. Peter, whom Jesus has given the key uh, to the kingdom. And uh, Peter's, Peter checks on his list and the names of the people in the book of life. And he goes, yep, you're here, come in. And the businessman says, oh, actually, I've got a favor to ask. Peter says, what's that? He says, I want to bring one suitcase with me. Peter says, I'm sorry, that's the rules. You can't bring anything with you, it's just you. And the, the businessman pleads, you see, he's, he's worked hard all his life. He's succeeded, he's, he's achieved so much. He says, Peter, just one suitcase. So Peter says, okay, you've got 24 hours, come back same time tomorrow with your suitcase. So the man goes back, and all his business interests, and he sells up, and he sells all his stock and his assets, he sells all his business, and he invests in gold bars, glistening, gold bullion. And he packs his suitcase and he lugs, he drags it back up to the pearly gates. And he's so proud of all his life achievement in this bag. And Peter says, yep, check your name, in you come. So the man goes through looking at the splendid city and Peter says, by the way, can I just check what you've brought in your suitcase? And the man's really proud. He goes, yes, you can. Look, my life's achievement. And he opens the case to reveal the shiny gold bars. And Peter looks at him and says, you brought paving stones? (laughs) Pray God that we will invest our lives in the things that matter into eternity. Shall we pray? Father, we bless you that in Jesus you have set your love upon us, that you are not just good, you are kind towards us. Father, we bless you even more that in Jesus' death and resurrection, you didn't just show us love, you conquered the forces of darkness. Lord, we bless you that you invite us in as partners to bring your kingdom, to make it present in the world, to be the answer to the questions this This aching, longing world is asking. Will you pour your spirit on us afresh, we pray. Will you make us your disciplined people? Will you shape us more and more like Jesus? Will you you give us that patient endurance, form that in us, to live through the suffering that we experience, the suffering of this world? Will you lift our hearts? Will you lift our eyes to see what you are doing and what you long to do, what you will do with this world? Will you fill our hearts with hope that we may praise you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.